The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwire.org.
trust is without borders. Father, take us deeper into your love. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Eyes to see, Lord. We thank you. I recently came across a humorous list of children's misunderstandings about things that we're probably just take for granted in church and in our society. One mother wrote, when I was a child, I learned this prayer. As our Father who are in heaven, Howard be thy name. I thought that was God's first name. From San Francisco, uh, no, from Groton, Massachusetts, I'm sorry, my mother spent her early childhood saying, Hail Mary, full of grapes. And from Missoula, Montana, my son, who is in nursery school, said, Our Father, who art in heaven, how'd you know my name? <laughs> in Uniontown, Ohio, I remember thinking this prayer was, Give us this day our jelly bread. <laughs> Another, I recall reading something years ago about the Pledge of Allegiance. Some child thought it began, I led the pigeons to the flag. <laughs> From Cleveland, Ohio, when I was little, I often wondered who Richard Stans was. You know, I pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for Richard Stans. <laughs> Another one from Schenectady, New York. I once knew a child whose favorite Sunday school song was Gladly, the, the Cross, I'm sorry, Gladly, the Cross-Eyed Bear. <laughs> and from Tampa, Florida, when my husband was six years old, he thought a certain prayer was, he suffered under a bunch of violets. <laughs> Lake Forest Park, this lady wrote, when I was a little girl, we sang a song in Sunday school about Noah. And part of the, the chorus was, and the rains came down and the floods came up. But they lived next door to a family that had two little girls, and they always sang that song when they were working out in the garden, and it was, the rains came down and the spuds came up. <laughs> Grand Junction, Colorado, when I was younger, I believed the line was, lead a snot into temptation. I thought I was praying for my little sister to get in trouble. <laughs> and another one, when my older brother was very young, he always walked up to the church altar with my mother when she took communion. On one occasion, he tugged at her arm and said, What does the priest say when he gives you the bread? Oh, Mom whispered something in his ear. Imagine his shock when years later he learned that the priest didn't say, Be quiet until you get back to your seat. <laughs> and this one I thought was fitting for Memorial Day. No respect to those who have lost loved ones. But a little boy was out in the lobby of the church looking up at a big plaque. And the preacher came out and he said, what you looking at? And he said, well, just wondering, who are all those guys? And the preacher said, those are men who lost their lives in the service. And he said, early or late? <laughs> <laughs> we laugh at these misunderstandings as adults, but truth be told, we may have some misconceptions of our own. The Bible says it like this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to destruction. 
So this morning I want us to take a closer look at what we believe. Our forefathers created what is known as creeds to distill down our core beliefs. One that you may be familiar with is the Apostles' Creed, and you can see it up here on the screen. It starts out, I believe, and then goes on to state some basic things that as Christians we claim to believe. However, biblical belief is different from what many of us call belief. You see, in Western culture, it's common to say, I believe something. For instance, I believe Barbara Streisand is the greatest vocalist ever. Or I believe Mr. Biden is the president. Things like that, while we may believe they are true, they don't really have any effect on our lives and the way we act. And the same is true of many who claim to be Christians. While we may say we believe in Jesus, we may have even prayed that magic prayer, been baptized, come to church every Sunday. That belief doesn't change how we walk, how we think, how we act. It doesn't cause us to live any differently than we did before all of that. Now, you see, biblical belief is not just having our fire insurance paid up. As Jesus puts it, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the Father puts it plainly in the very first commandment. I am Yahweh. You shall have no other little g gods before me. There are many who believe that if I'm a Christian, my life will be smooth sailing. But Jesus makes a promise in John 16:33 that I'm afraid we often overlook. He says, in this world, you will have trials and tribulations. That's a promise. You will. That means that we will have financial setbacks. We will get cancer. We will have heart attacks. We will have loved ones get sick and maybe even die. In fact, we will at some point face death ourselves. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You know, there's a popular belief today that being a Christian means you'll be healthy and wealthy. In reality, that's a very shallow and weak faith because when that doesn't occur, it leaves your faith at crisis. And many have turned from God when that didn't work out. To disprove the validity of that, we can just look at Jesus and his own disciples. Jesus said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. And except for John, all of his disciples died martyrs' deaths. That's certainly not the rosy, rosy picture of a carefree life. Many people believe that God, that they need God in the hard times. But during the good times, they don't have much use for him. But the Lord expects intimate relationship from us. And that means that we actively make him a moment-by-moment presence in our lives and activities. And there are still others who believe that God is a vengeful God, just waiting for them to mess up so he can zap them. Well, they either aren't aware or they've forgotten the most requoted passage in the Old Testament, which is found in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is the Lord God speaking to Moses. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, there are two things there to notice. First, that God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So you see, he's not just waiting in the corner trying to catch you so he could zap you. But then the second thing is that he's, he will punish wrongdoing. Now, you may say, well, those two don't go together. But think with me for just a moment. Is it loving to let someone continue in sin or wrongdoing? or even believing wrong things? Isn't it more loving to correct it? If you see an older child beating up on a younger one, isn't it more loving for both of them to intervene and correct the behavior of the older one and teach him that there's a better way to behave and to protect the innocent one? Of course it is. And God desires to correct us in our sin. The writer of Hebrews says, My son, do not make light of the world's discipline and do not lose, of the Lord's discipline, I'm sorry, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. If he didn't correct you, that wouldn't be love. That would be apathy. Who wants an apathetic God? And that second sentence in the creed calls Jesus our Lord. We don't comprehend in our society what the Jewish mind would have understood for that to mean. You see, their culture is one of patron and patronage. Your patron is someone who is able to provide something for you that you can't supply for yourself. So you go to them for that thing or that help, and then you owe them your undying allegiance. They are your Lord. You do whatever they ask of you because you understand that you owe them your very life. And the fact is that we owe God our lives. After all, he created us. He supplies us with the air that we breathe. He keeps our hearts beating. In addition, he sent Jesus, his son, to die in our place as a sacrifice for our sin and to make eternal life available to us. So he deserves to be our Lord. That description of Jesus' life and death, his burial and resurrection, his ascension and his promise to return are what we commemorate in communion. But more than that, we're stating that we believe all of these things. In other words, we are stating that our belief will affect our behavior, our choices and actions to be in line with what Jesus expects of us as his followers, because as he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. One point of clarification in this creed, that small c Catholic church does not refer to the Roman Catholic church. It refers to the universal church of believers around the world who truly trust in Jesus as their savior. So I'd like for us to proclaim what we believe this morning. If you are able and would join me in standing, let's read this together. 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we come to this time, I ask that we would be flooded with your Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of our weakness in faith, of our wrong thinking. Show us the blind spots where we act not according to the way you would have us. Father, may we walk away this morning in newness of life like never before. Because of Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen. everybody needs a good fish story, right? And and so I'm going to tell you mine, but first, is this not the cutest picture in the world, right? This is our daughter, Emma Janae, uh, with my dad, Frank Smith, and my dad is absolutely in his element. I remember Holy Ghost Canyon. We spent most of our time at Cow Creek, which is a little bit further down uh, on the Pecos River. And so I remember uh, Smucker's peanut butter and grape jelly. You know, those lines. We used to get that as kids all the time when we headed up that way. I remember my mom grabbing my dad's arm ah, as we got close to the edge, right? Going up the mountain. It's similar to the experience at El Porvenir when you're doing that. I remember if we couldn't find my dad and pretty soon after lunch, he disappeared again. We could find him underneath a bridge. He knew exactly where the fish were 100% of the time. But when you find dad, make sure that you don't yell out to him and scare the fish, right? That is a very bad day indeed. Now, when I was younger, I didn't catch much fish. I was just there for the Pringles. But, but I, I, do, I do remember one day when I did, and that's the fish story that I'm getting back to. And so I put the bait on my hook. I walked out. I said, you know, I'm going to have to change my tactics. What I'm doing is not working. And so I saw the bridge, and I, I threw my line over the side of the bridge. Now, I know it's probably illegal or just a bad idea, whatever. I'm 12. Cut me some slack. And so I did that. I dropped it down. I heard it hit the water. I counted to five. And then in front of me is a flying fish. And I'm like clearing my eyes. I'm trying to process what's happening because I had flung up the line. And at the end of the line, can you believe it, is this fish flying in front of my eyes, over my head, and right behind me on the road. 
And I turned around for what I was sure would be applause, and there was not a single person there to corroborate my story to you today. Merely the, merely the word of a, of a pastor up here bringing a sermon is all I've got. We're going to look at a fish story again today. We're going to be in the book of Jonah. But before that, I want to take a look at this quote from last week. He wants all of you. It was a powerful sermon for our graduates, for anybody really. Are we ready to listen to the Lord's leading? We're going to see if this guy listens to the Lord's leading Today, So turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah 1 and 2 today. If you need help finding the book of Jonah, it's right after Obadiah. So there you go. That should be pretty easy. So road trip is where we're at. Jonah 1, 1 through 6 is how we're going to start it. This is the beginning of our summer sermon series, Road Trip. And so we're going to look at a road trip for Jonah. So here we go as we read this morning in the ESV. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the, ships, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, little g. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So why was Jonah running? Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Assyria is Israel's worst enemy. So that gives you a little bit of insight. So the Lord says, rise and go. And so Jonah rose and fled. Now, Tarshish is the farthest point west known in his day. And this map kind of really was eye-opening for me. You see Joppa to Nineveh, 550 miles. Now that's a long way, right? But Joppa to Tarshish, 2,500 miles. This guy was trying all that he could to get away from the Lord. And he's headed to Tarshish because Yahweh is not honored or known there. They don't know about Yahweh. So he is thinking, if I can get there, I can disappear. I can start over. Uh, the presence of the Lord hopefully, fingers crossed, is not there, and nobody knows me. He never got to Tarshish, right? So God sent a, a great wind. He sent a, a mighty storm, and the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to their own God. Again, little g. Meanwhile, Jonah's asleep. The little g gods have not answered anybody's prayers. Big surprise. And so the men have taken uh, matters into their own hands. They begin to throw cargo overboard in order to save their own lives. They're looking for Jonah. There's one more passenger on the boat. This dude is crashed out in the inner deck. The mariner says, hey, get up. 
Pray to your God. He does not know that his God's Yahweh. Pray to your God, little g. Everybody has a little g God, right? Jonah is absolutely zero help. Our sin may be hidden from others, but that doesn't mean it won't hurt others. And the reason why I say that is because Jonah's sin is not known to the Ninevites. It is not known to the mariners on the ship, yet it affects both of them, doesn't it? His sin, and we're about to find out what that is right now, is definitely impacting the lives of the mariners and all of the lives of Nineveh hang in the balance from Jonah's decision. Our sin may be hidden, but it affects other people. So what was his sin? I'm glad you asked the question because that's the next point. Jonah 1, 7 through 16 is where we are next. If you'll turn there, my header says Jonah is thrown into the sea. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, remember that, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So, What was his sin? His sin was disobedience. God had given him a directive and he blatantly disobeyed it. He went completely in the other direction. It's interesting to note that the mariners in turn pray to their little gods. And when the captain asked Jonah to pray to his big God, Yahweh, Jonah doesn't pray. Jonah never prays on the ship. At this point, he is indifferent to his own life and the lives of others. It's kind of an insight of where he is right now. And the lot fell to Jonah and the questions came. The interrogation began. What's your occupation? Where are you from? Who are your people? One after another. And the men knew he was fleeing from the Lord because Jonah told them, right? He was quick to proclaim his God but he was not super great with the follow-through. And friends, empty words lead to empty actions. Jonah's words have no weight because he has no hope. 
He says, I I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And we have this picture, or at least I do in my head, of Jonah maybe putting his hands together in prayer, a little light coming out through the clouds, shining, illuminating his body as he proclaims the Lord his God. It says the mariners were afraid. Hebrew word is yareh. I love digging into these Hebrew words in, in the study of Jonah because Yareh has two different meanings. It can go either way. It can be translated as fear, reverence, or it can be translated as afraid, terrified. So when it says the mariners were afraid, it means they were terrified. It's used three times in the book of Jonah, all in this chapter. Now, Jonah would rather die in the sea than to go to Nineveh, right? But here's the thing. He wasn't willing to do it himself. Jonah could have jumped over the side of the boat, and it would have had the same effect. Is this true? He didn't. He didn't. And so Jonah puts it on these men, and he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. So the men frantically tried to row to shore. They didn't want his blood on their hands. They weren't really sure who this guy Yahweh was, but apparently he's a really big deal. So much so that they come to the end of themselves and they said, oh Lord, hear what they're saying now? Before they're saying, little G, God, help me. Now they're saying, oh, Lord, ah, you, please have mercy on us. Let us not perish for this man's life. And they pick him up and they throw him into the sea. And the storm stops and all was calm. And then, I love this, it says, then the men feared the Lord. Fear, reverence. Do you understand that these men are acting more like men of God than Jonah is at this point? How do you see the Lord? Yare. Is it, is it reverence? Do you come before him and surrender in obedience? Or is it afraid, terrified of what he's going to do? Kind of stay away as much as you can. I think we all have that one friend that says, a lightning bolt will strike me if I darken the door of a church, right? Have you heard somebody say that? Maybe you've said that before. I know I have. Now, I haven't shared my story, my time in Egypt. I've alluded to it, but I feel like this is a safe place, so I'm going to go ahead and share just a little bit of it. I I grew up in the church. My dad was a bivocational pastor. meant that he worked on the weekdays at Pointers, home and auto, delivering appliances, getting up on roofs. I mean, he was out working those young kids, and some of those young kids come up and tell me some amazing stories of my father. And he preached on the weekends. I started leading singing at the age of five, if you can believe it. So I've been leading singing for a long time because I am an old dude, right? I gave my life to Jesus at the age of nine. I was baptized shortly thereafter. I've, I've, I've been professing Christ for a really long time. 
I declared my, my life to the ministry at age 17. I remember coming up, tiny little First Spanish Baptist Church here in town. I remember coming up to the front. I remember everybody from the, the sanctuary coming over to me, laying their hands on me and, and praying over me. Saved by God's grace, I was going to make a difference for the kingdom, and they were sending me out. Except I didn't. And it was a, a slow and gradual decline, but I, I found myself partying more and more in, in college, uh, getting more and more carried away. And, and then the party stopped, and I kept drinking. A lot. And if I were God, I would have given up on me. When Jonah was cast out, when Jonah was thrown into the sea, he did not expect to be rescued. I didn't either. I didn't deserve it anyway. But friends, grace is not given to the deserving. Grace in its definition is unmerited favor. Unmerited meaning without merit. That means you didn't do a thing to deserve it. Did you hear that passage in Ephesians? So that no man may boast. God extends his grace to you and I, the dumpster fire that we are. Now, we've all seen the VeggieTales movie, but let's see what happens next, right? So Jonah 1.17 is where we will continue. And then we'll read the powerful prayer, finally, of Jonah. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And Jonah fell further and further down into the depths, and maybe he closed his eyes for what seemed like the last time to him. And it says the Lord provided a great fish and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Sound familiar? And Jonah prays like a man who is well versed in the scriptures because he is. He's known about it most of his life. It says the fish spewed, vomited. I love that. Him out upon dry land. 
And for Jonah and for you and I, a place of death becomes a place of deliverance. It becomes two forks in a road, and we choose to move towards the Lord. New beginnings, death to life, beauty from ashes. What does your name mean? I know that's super abrupt, right? But my name, Franklin, means free man. Middle English origin. But I got to tell you, I didn't feel very free trapped in the belly of a fish. Metaphorically, of course, that's never actually happened to me. I married my high school sweetheart. Uh, I call her my high school sweetheart. We have never actually dated in high school. Uh, I tried. She didn't. It's okay. It's a, it's a beautiful story. I wore her down in the end. So there we go. Life was good. Um, and I, I tried to manage my drinking, but it was spilling over into my marriage more and more and more. So much so that I knew I was going to have to make a choice. The bottle or my beautiful wife. I was not a free man. I was chained and I knew it. We've been renovating for a really long time. Uh, we, our first renovation was actually a small garage that we remodeled on South Avenue C uh, for our extended bedroom. Um, and so we put up glass block. We did most of the drywall. We had somebody come in and put in some carpet. It was about the color of this bow tie here. And I loved it, absolutely loved it. And one night, everybody was asleep, and I was there staring through the glass block. And a presence came over me, and I, and I hit my knees. And tears streamed down my face. So when Jonah prays that prayer in the belly of the whale, I get that too. But if you don't hear anything else today, know this. God's grace is greater than your sin. God's grace is greater than anything that you have ever done in your life. You may think you don't deserve it, but that's the thing. None of us do. And Jonah is spit out onto dry land. If we look at the map again, it's actually pretty funny because the, where the water stops is actually Joppa. It's probably in the same spot where he started on the boat. And the Bible doesn't say, but I'm really hoping this guy took a shower, right? I mean, three days holding a fish, just holding it is bad enough. Three days inside one? Oh, my goodness. And what's Jonah's thought process as he's heading to Nineveh? I think it's probably obedience with a chip on his shoulder. I'll go, but I won't like it. Jonah was proud. He was disobedient. He was stubborn. He was argumentative. He was unfaithful. Jonah lied. Uh, Light his way to Tarshish, only to arrive back at Joppa, stinking to high heaven, and headed for Nineveh, the place where God told him to go anyway, right? And you know what his name means? Dove, as in peace. God is making a declaration to the world. His grace is for everyone. Your imperfections will never override God's promises. I hope you know that today. 
those things that you can't stand about yourself, they won't override God's promises. Those circumstances that you think are bigger than you can handle, ask God to intervene in them because your imperfections will never override His promises. But I know as we finish up today, we've got to talk about the elephant in the room, right? Or in this case, the whale. And so let's do that. Could the, could the prophet really be swallowed by a great fish, right? Is this historical or this is an allegory? There's people on both sides, actually. Does it matter one way or the other at the end of the day? I, I don't really think it is, but I don't want to be wishy-washy. See what I did there? Washy ocean. <laughs> so this is what I believe after studying. This is what I believe. Jonah is referred to as a prophet, specifically named, in 2 Kings 14.25. 2 Kings is a historical book chronicling the divided kingdoms of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Also, Jesus compared himself to Jonah and the people in his time to Nineveh. This is found in Matthew 12.39-41. It's hard for me to see how fictional characters could stand up in an event Jesus would absolutely have believed would be historical. At the end of the day, the story of Jonah is the story of me. It's the story of you as the team comes up. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of, of death to life, of new beginnings, of purpose. Stop running from your life. And know that life is more than survival. Now, we may be trapped in the belly of a large fish. And we don't even know it. This endless Groundhog Day loop, right? We wake up, we go to work, we come home, we go to sleep. Over and over and over again with no purpose mere existence. What if I told you that living in the belly of a fish is not enough? What if I told you just existing is not enough? What if I told you that God has a purpose for you, each and every one of you? He has been calling out to you. He is calling you to put your faith where your trust is without borders, to get out of the boat, to get moving. Life is more than survival. If you have breath, thank you, Miss Vickers, then we still have a mission. So now the choice is yours. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy because difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. You're going to have to do hard things for the rest of your life. Amen. Spirit, lead me. Spirit, lead us. Where our trust is without Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.